Welcome to Four Quarter Lives, a podcast exploring the profound impact of longer, healthier, and more engaged lives, not only for ourselves and our couples, but also for companies and countries. I'm Aviva Wittenberg-Cox, and on this week's Four Quarter Lives, I talk with Hala Nazeri, platform curator shaping the future of financial and monetary systems for the World Economic Forum. We discuss the WEF's recent report called Living Longer Better, Understanding Longevity Literacy. In it, the WEF explores how literate or not people of different ages are about the new longevity. And we discuss how people in Q2 and in dual careers can better prepare for this new Q3 and how we can all become more longevity literate. Hallie Nazari, welcome to Four Quarter Lives. Thank you, Viva. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Now, you have just, as the longevity lead at the Center for Financial and Monetary Systems for the World Economic Forum, produced a little while ago, but just before the summer, a really interesting report that I think is fascinating and worth revisiting. And my kind of overriding question of what this report is trying to say and who it's addressed to is, are companies and governments waking up to the reality of aging populations and all these incredibly new demographic shapes that are shifting really from pyramids to much more generally balanced squares? What's your sense? I think slowly they are waking up to it, which is really thrilling for me because I feel like for quite a while, we have kind of been shouting from the rooftops that this is a really important topic. We need you to pay attention to it. This is a global topic. It's going to happen to every population in every country around the world. It's already happening in some countries, and it's going to happen to others in the next 20 to 30 years. And we really need to address it and think about it and figure out some new and innovative solutions. Was that a result of the pandemic? I mean, is this shift that you're seeing relatively recent? I don't know if it has anything to do with the pandemic, but I think the pandemic opened our eyes up to all of the other risks that are out there that we need to consider other than just the ones we've been thinking about. And I think a demographic change is one of them. However, I really want to make sure that I do frame this conversation in a way that we're talking about opportunities. I also don't love it when it's constantly framed as a challenge and what are we going to do with all these older people? That's not how we see it. I don't think that's the way we should look at this either. I think it's a chance to innovate, and I think it's an opportunity to come up with new ideas, new strategies uh, looking at things. It'll certainly be the first time in human history that we've seen anything like this kind of generational balance. So what about individuals? Companies and governments are beginning to awaken. How, how are individuals doing? Are they thinking and planning for longevity yet? No. And that was really the focus of the work we started doing about a year ago and of this report. So the initiative that I work on is called Longevity Economy, Financial Resilience for All Generations. And that's really what we were going for. We didn't want people to think that we're working on retirement and pension systems and this only matters to a certain age group or category. I think the most important people that this matters to is people just starting out in their 20s to start really thinking about how different your life is going to be. Because what we're finding is we're going to live 20 to 30 years longer than past generations. And that means we have to kind of just rethink everything, everything from how we live to work, to study, to save and to retire. The whole thing basically needs to be a mindset shift. So 
as we were working on this initiative, what we really decided we needed to focus on is exactly what you just said, to help people understand that, you know, this three-stage life is over that we all talk about of school, work, and retire, that they have to consider all sorts of other things, that they have to probably reskill at some point, that there's going to be pauses in their careers and they're going to come out. And what that means for them is you're going to have to start saving earlier because you just don't know what's going to happen. And also, it's going to be a long life. And you can't necessarily work 60 years straight, which is what some people are saying. That's just not feasible or sustainable for humans. So what does that look like? Where might you take some breaks? How are you going to do that? And I think it's helpful to start thinking about that early so you can kind of plan it out for you. And that's how we got to this idea of longevity literacy, is to kind of differentiate it and explain kind of this new concept to people. So I love that term. So you've called the report Living Longer Better, Understanding Longevity Literacy. So I think that's a really good term. I think words matter incredibly in this space, especially since you kind of, as you're saying, want to rebrand it and package it for younger generations so they wake up to it. So help us define it. What do you mean by longevity literacy? So when we talk about longevity literacy, we're not just talking about financial resilience. It is a much more holistic look at what we're talking about. So I come from the Center for Financial and Monetary Systems. Many of the people I work with are insurers, asset managers, pension funds, banks, the people who are thinking about this topic. And it was interestingly enough, really through them, that we all kind of came together in this work that we're doing to realize that we can't just focus on finances and financial resilience when we're talking about longevity that we need to broaden out this topic. And really one of the most important things we need to talk about is healthy aging. Because if you're going to live this longer life, you want your health span to keep up with your lifespan and not live extra 20 years, but in ill health. You want to stay healthy that whole time. And that also starts when you're younger. So it's financial resilience, it's healthy aging. And the third component is purpose. And what we mean by purpose is purpose in what you do, purpose in finding a community, and we're including lifelong learning and skills in that as well. Many people, when they retire, find that they're not quite sure what to do with themselves. The number one issue we keep hearing about is people just don't know what to do. So that's how we define longevity literacy. And we, we, we want people to think about all three of those things as they're living this longer life, how your health is, what your purpose is, how to stay financially resilient. So it's kind of like a mass education process of building a new kind of literacy in. So I'm not surprised that health came out first, but I was really intrigued in the report signaling that people really think and know that caregiving is going to be a big part of their future. We've thought so much, women of our generation, about child care and child care support. Now, is it the issue of elder care that's top of mind or is it now the whole spectrum? I think it's the whole spectrum, but what we specifically asked in our survey, and I should say that we did this survey with our friends over at Mercer, who have been a wonderful partner on this journey with the World Economic Forum. They did a pulse poll, and their question was, do you think you will need to look after older or unwell members of your family in the future? And two-thirds of respondents said yes. So this is specifically focused on elder care, not just children, which is a huge amount of people, and it is just a very different way of kind of planning your life because not only do many people lose money because they have to leave work, but on average, we're finding the family caregivers are spending 26% of their income on caregiving activities as well. 26%. That's huge. Yeah. 
Another study we found said that in the UK, more than 600 people a day leave paid employment to care for a loved one. And these numbers are not really sustainable, to be totally honest. I don't know how families can keep this up without some support from workplaces, policymakers, and others. Well, and the two-thirds of people worried about having to care for elders is a pretty strong indicator of these shifting demographic pyramids where there are going to be a lot fewer young people for old people, which increases the responsibility. And also that we've designed societies for childcare, if we're lucky in some if countries. If we're lucky, yeah. I think many, many countries don't even have that, but yes, yeah. you're right. In the rich world, we've designed, if anything, for childcare. And so the whole elder care issue, we have old, old age homes, but the whole decades leading up to that is probably going to be a big part of this solution, if we can call it that. I mean, it could even be simple things like work allowing you to take leave for anything family related, not just for having a baby or having an issue at home, but any issue that's related to your family in any way, including a sick elder. Yeah, that seems like a simple solution to me. But And that requires getting age back on the corporate agenda, which is the exactly. work of the next few years. So thank you for all of your pushing on that. I, I was intrigued by another variable that came out that the under 40s are still dreaming of this kind of retirement phase that we had in the three phase life. But the over 40s are saying they want to keep working longer. What do you make of that? Was that a surprise? It was a huge surprise. I understand that, you know, I was looking specifically at financial issues before, but I was really surprised to hear that. I'm not really sure how they got to that point other than the under 40s have this idea of what it could look like. I wish them the best, but I understand a bit more the over 40s who want to work and see themselves continuing to work. I think that's part of the purpose part, the purpose initiative where people find that working is actually not the worst thing in the world and maybe adds something to their life. Hopefully they like their job and it adds something. I think many, many people are saying that they might not be able to afford to retire, which is very difficult, but it's a fact that many people are thinking of. So I don't know what to say to that, but it makes me want to continue to kind of push them to think about their finances and to plan it out a bit better and to see what that looks like. And the kind of job they had, if it's exhausting, onerous, body harming, or whether it's us sitting behind desks doing intellectual work that we're passionate about. It's a very unequal world out there in the uh, working longer spheres and discussions. So the report has three sections, healthy aging, purpose, and financial resilience. Will you just share one stat or takeaway from each of those sections that you found particularly interesting? Sure. I think I already shared the one from Healthy Aging, and that was caregiving. That was a really big one for me. We found that most people were most concerned about their health as well and staying healthy as they age longer. In purpose, I was really struck by the focus on isolation and loneliness. 40% of our respondents said that they feel isolated now, and 30% feared they will be lonely in later life. And we found that women and those under age 40 feel even more isolated than men and people over 40. And that was a hard one. That was kind of really heartbreaking to see, but I think it's really a a huge issue here in the United States. Our U.S. Attorney General calls it an epidemic of loneliness. And I don't think that's hyperbole. I think 
I think it's a real issue that we need to confront and address here. And that's why I really think that purpose and connections is so critical to longevity literacy and a long and healthy life. Studies have found that people who have a purpose in life have a community around them, whether that is their friends, their place of worship, volunteering or working, they live longer and happier lives. So that is one of the reasons we made purpose such a central part of this tenet so that people prioritize these things. I'm intrigued by the gender difference there because we often read that women are more socially connected than men and in later life they have a better social fabric. I'm surprised that your report would say that no, on the contrary. Are they just fearing it or are they actually Uh, experiencing it? I don't know. I mean, the second one was they fear they will be lonely later in life. So I think that is part of how they foresee their life going forward. But it was pretty surprising to me as well. Maybe the men are still in work. And so they can't even imagine what life is like post work and the social structures they may need. What about financial resilience, the third chapter? I found our respondents, the female, the women respondents answers kind of the most interesting. We found that while men look forward to retirement, more than half of our female respondents said they don't know if they have saved enough money. And they also did not understand their financial situation. And that was another kind of That's mildly terrifying, you know, not knowing that black hole of fear and not knowing. Yes. And quite honest for the respondents to say that. And that is problematic in a number of ways, mostly because the gender pension gap is such a huge thing as it already is. There's one in virtually every retirement income system around the world. The gap in the U.S. is 34%. The one in the U.K. is 40%. Can you explain that? So that means the average pension that women get in the U.K. is 40% below the average male pension? That's right. 40%. Oh, my That's God. Right. And on top of that is the other things that we already know about women. We call it the triple storm here, that women tend to live five years on average longer than men, which means they save money for retirement. They're the ones with the biggest gaps in their employment history because they're taking care of the caregiving issues, either for children or elder care. And, you know, the World Economic Forum also puts out this global gender gap report every year. And our past one said that we are now 131 years away from closing the gender gap. So these are all the issues that women face on top of not knowing if they've saved enough. And that was another kind of glaring issue for me and trying to find ways to help women not only have a better understanding of their financial situation, but to kind of add to their savings as they go on. Pensions is such a boring and complex and complicated topic, but I have been quite astonished by some countries, you divorce, you lose the pension. The whole pension system seems designed for a world that's disappeared of single earner men with dependent wives and hasn't updated to the reality of two income careers, but where one income is often bumpy and intermittent in function of care responsibilities. Any hope that, um, any discussion even, of really rethinking pension systems? I know that many countries are currently undergoing pension reform. I know the Netherlands is doing it. I know there are several countries throughout South America doing it. I don't know, unfortunately, if they are focusing on the dual career pension. I can tell you on a personal note that I took a bit of a career break and I was devastated that I had no money going into my retirement savings plan during that time. 
is a huge issue for us and will continue to be for the rest of my life, even though I'm working again now. That was a big chunk of money that I sort of missed out on. I kept thinking, isn't there some way that either work or policymakers can kind of, we can figure out a solution to this. So I don't have it, but I hope it is on the agenda going forward. We will do our best to get it on the agenda. So let me delve to, you've started in a little bit on your personal experience. Let me delve a little bit deeper because it's always interesting, the personal experience behind some of the research. Your own life influences shows how to be longevity literate. Can you share some of the choices you made in Q2, which is what I call the second quarter, the years from 25 to 50, that you might do differently after having done all this work and this report? I think the biggest thing that I would do, I think for anyone taking a break in their career for whatever the reason is, I would really urge people, and I wish I'd done more of it, is to stay in touch with your network and your professional connections. You took a decade-long career break, right? I did. You were a good representation of the sandwich generation. You were carrying both elders and children who needed attention over quite a number of years. Yeah, life sort of happened to me. You know, you have, that's the other thing I think with longevity literacy is we just never know where life will take us. My career gap started on purpose. I was working at AIG in 2008. And as we all know, that's when the financial crisis happened. And so I was going to lose my job and I knew it was coming. So I planned with my husband that I would take some time. We would have another child and I would stay home for just a bit of time. And then I'd go back to work. But life doesn't turn out how we think it will. And my father, who lived far away from me in California while I'm in New York, went into the hospital for a stomach ache and walked out with stage four pancreatic cancer diagnosis. And that sort of put everything on hold for me, to be totally honest. So I spent the next 10 months of his life flying back and forth to California and helping my parents out and kind of trying to have as many moments as I could with him because pancreatic cancer is the worst. And then um, he passed. And then to be totally honest, I was watching my mom for about a year because she is, even though she's one of the strongest women I'd ever met, my dad apparently did everything and she was too nervous to even go to the bank. She didn't want to go out after dark. So I had to really kind of help her realize that not only is she fully capable of it, but she has no choice now. She has to do these things. So there was that. And then my son got sick. And <laughs> so every time I thought I would be done with my gap, I had the kid, I was going to go back to work. Nope. You know, the thing happened with my father, then with my mother. And then I was ready again. But then my child had issues that we had to deal with. So one thing led to another and it became... Ten years went by, yeah. Ten years. Yeah, well, you know, many of us have two parents and more than one kid. And so if you take that staged approach of series, I think once you pass 50, the dominant social conversation suddenly becomes what you're doing with your parents and about your parents for quite a number of years And that has enormous cost. And I think the stats on who is the caregiver of parents falls inordinately. I think it's like 70% on female shoulders. And so your research is now showing the financial cost to those women in the future. Yeah. No, and I hope that conversation also changes, that it's always, you know, the daughter or the daughter-in-law who will be the one to... Focus so looking back, would you, could you, would you have done anything differently? What can we do? There are not yet systems to support that. 
I don't know what I would have done differently. I think it was, I tried everything I could to kind of take care of my family and to take care of the situation. I think Aviva, to be honest, what happened is by year eight, I reached a point where I realized that it was time to take care of myself, to be totally honest, that I had done the best I could for everyone. And I kind of needed to refocus a bit. And that's when I started to kind of prepare everyone for the fact I needed to go back to work, not just wanted, but I needed to go back to work. And then I did the focus on myself. And that's when I realized, oh, you should have actually probably kept your work connections from eight years ago, because this is really hard to explain a 10 year gap. And nobody really believes that I'm capable of doing these things because they don't know me. They just see that gap. So like I said, I think that's something I would definitely do differently, not only for the connections, but also what I found is for the conversations and for the topic matter expertise, especially if you're a topic matter expert, I sort of forgot how to talk the language, to be yeah. totally honest, during that time. Very important, the lingo, the literacy, the corporate yes. literacy. <laughs> I mean, an important lesson is kind of put your own safety mask on before you try and help everybody else. I think a lot of women overinvest a bit in the caring thing at this really high cost, not only to their current state, but to their future selves. And I think you're underlining that pretty dramatically. Yeah. So let's move on. Next steps. I think your next project is focusing from longevity literacy to longevity principles. You're currently working on a fairly broad-based initiative to establish a list of principles to help all different kinds of stakeholders get longevity ready. Can you share them and, and who's involved? Sure, I'd be happy to. I'm really excited about this phase of our work. You know, we've been doing this work at the World Economic Forum for over three years, and I've had a wonderful partnership with private sector partners and businesses and academics, and they've all been extremely engaged and really helpful. But what I really wanted to focus on for this next phase is to broaden our public-private collaboration. What we found with this issue also is you can't do it in a vacuum. You need all the stakeholders at the table. So while I had the private sector partners there, what I really wanted was the policymakers and public sector partners there. And that's what we are trying to do with this phase. So I'm yeah, fortunate. I was very intrigued to hear that you found the private sector much more responsive to this than the public sector, because it's probably going to hit the public sector even harder. I agree. But I think the private sector has the employees who they're kind of looking out for, first of all, that they're trying to figure out what to do for them. Many of the companies I work with create these packages, these financial packages, and they're thinking about it. Many of them were thinking also for their employees, but they're curious and they're trying to find solutions and be innovative. But now we have our public sector partners. We have colleagues from the European Commission who are helping us out. We, Since we have such a bigger focus on healthy aging, I have colleagues from the WHO who are involved in this work. There are these amazing civil society organizations in countries like Singapore that are focused on skills that the government helps fund that are part of this. And we're increasingly working in the U.S. to partner with Capitol Hill and see if we can get some of them engaged in this work, because I just don't know how we'll move forward if everyone's not at the table. So that's what we're doing here is broadening that public-private partnership. And what we're broadening it about, what we're trying to promote is a set of longevity principles. And we decided to do this because, you know, I think one of the main things that people who work on this topic try to do is elevate the issue and to make sure everyone not only understands it, but is talking about it. And we thought this was a great way to focus people. And like we said before, to create a common language 
that we can talk about when we're saying longevity and what we need to focus on. So in the past few months, we have been working with this amazing multi-stakeholder group at the Forum with the help of Mercer, our friends at Mercer. And we have somehow condensed all of these ideas down to six core principles that we think are critical to longevity. And what we're planning on doing is to put that all together in a report where we talk about each of the principles. We offer a business case for why it's important. And we offer a social case, why it's important for society to focus on these principles. And we plan on publishing that report in Davos next year for our annual meeting in 2024. So coming up soon, can you share these six principles with us now or do we have to wait until until Davos? I can share them broadly. And I think these are kind of the issues that are sort of the most critical when we're talking about this topic. It's everything from obviously financial resilience. Really what we want most in life is for people not to retire into poverty. That's kind of the goal. Don't retire into poverty. So the first one's financial resilience. Then we talk about financial education. That includes longevity literacy, but just making sure everyone has equal access to that globally. Healthy aging is a focus. We think it's foundational for the longevity economy. We have a focus on jobs and lifelong skill building and the multi-generational workforce. We're going to have four to five generations of people working side by side, and there needs to be some adjustments for that and to have everyone consider that. Another one is focused, again, on purpose and connections. So we want to focus on designing environments, intentional environments for social connections and purpose. And the final one, is, which is critical, is to also intentionally address longevity inequalities across gender, across race, and especially across class. I think that's yeah. one area we haven't done enough of. So those are the principles we're focusing on. Fantastic. I look forward to hearing all about them and what we come up with by uh, Davos next year, 2024. Holly, thank you so much for sharing all thank of you, those. Anita. Excited to see it emerge and excited to see it start hitting a nerve and building everybody's longevity literacy. Yes, me too. Thanks I love this topic work. and I love the work that you do on this topic. So it's a pleasure to be here with you to talk about Fantastic. this. Fantastic. Back to the basic principles soon. Thank you. Thank you. For more thinking about the impact of our four quarter lives, you can read my column at Forbes and subscribe to my Elderberries newsletter on Substack. Let's design lives that aren't just longer, but better.